Dear Father, we are thankful, Father, for the joy of the saints, for the opportunity to commiserate and, and suffer and, to some extent, Father, empathize with each other in what we each face and to pray for one another and to support one another in these times. We thank you, Father, for the way we work truly as a family would, a family that knows the love of God. And um, in that way, Father, you give us what most of us lack probably in some respect. Um, in our own earthly families, in our earthly relationships, uh, we get to see what true love looks like played out in the body of Christ, Father, so that we would understand uh, what it really means to have the kind of relationship you make possible by faith in Christ. And we value that, Father. We treasure it. I think, speaking for myself, Father, you know how much I need to come to events like this at least a few times each week. For if I'm away from it for too long, it feels like I'm alone in the world. And that's, that's the way we feel, Father, without you and without the Lord and uh, directing us to others like you who have come to know you also. Thank you for that blessing. Let us never take it for granted, Father, for there may be a day when we don't have that easy access. And we will remember these days fondly. And so, Father, it's a blessing as long as you give it to us. And, Father, there are others in the body who lack it now, who are isolated or who have nowhere to turn or so they think. We ask, Father, that you would have mercy on them as well and give them the kind of community we have. Thank you for the word and how it binds us together, leads us toward you and Gives us a call to serve, Father, that is uh, above what the world would ask. It calls us to eternal concerns, not personal concerns. And it asks us, Father, to be prepared in ways that are sacrificial so that we can be more like you. We ask, Lord, that you'd remind us of that mission tonight as we study what you told Timothy into his church. For we know you wrote it to us as well. So let us hear it as from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week, I trust you had an opportunity over the last week to reflect on the analogies that Paul gave us at the first half of chapter 2, where he compared our walk in Christ to that of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. Each of those analogies, you remember, drove home a key point. For example, a soldier is committed to serving well at the sacrifice of everyday concerns, Paul said, and in spite of the expectation of danger. Athletes compete earnestly and according to the rules so that they may obtain a prize at the end. And farmers, we learned, demonstrate persistence and patience in the face of difficult work because they know they only obtain a reward at the end. And Paul taught all three of those analogies so that he could make application to our lives as Christian. And the applications are fairly obvious. We, too, are called to serve Christ sacrificially in spite of persecution at times. We also compete for a prize. So we set our minds on observing the commandments of the lords that we would please him and like a farmer we understand the work is going to be hard at times but the reward appears after the season of our earthly life ends therefore paul concluded we suffer hardship we endure persecution gladly even because we know it is a testing of our endurance and therefore an opportunity for us to earn reward and we won't always pass those tests with flying colors sometimes we're going to stumble sometimes we may shrink back Certainly we will feel like giving up at times, but Paul told Timothy, you can stand strong in the face of these things by the grace that the Lord offers, something he intends to give us in those moments so that we will follow through. If only we will choose to embrace the trial. Of course, not all believers do that, right? Not all believers embrace the trial. Uh, Instead, some go the other direction. So now Paul, in the second half of chapter 2, is moving to giving instruction to Timothy concerning this wayward group. 
Paul bridged the discussion of those who serve well with those who may not with that saying that we ended with last week, that trustworthy statement. Paul assigns it the weight of Scripture by incorporating it into his letter. And in this creed that we studied last time, we saw affirmed several important theological principles. First, in verse 11, it succinctly summarizes the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ. That is, if you have faith in Christ, then you will share in his eternal life, having died with him. And then in verse 12, that statement, that saying, proceeded from faith to good works. That is, by enduring in service to Christ through your good works, Paul says, the statement says, we will see a reward of reigning with Christ in the kingdom. To endure is to reign. But then, as you remember, the saying turned decidedly negative. In the second half of verse 12, we're reminded that those who deny Christ their service will likewise be denied rewards. The word deny sounds so strong that it can lead some to assuming incorrectly that Paul's speaking about a severing of our relationship with Christ. But of course, that's not even possible, since every believer is eternally secure in their relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ does not turn on behaviors or on attitudes or even on thought. Moreover, if you looked at the final verse of that saying in verse 13, the saying clarifies what was intended in verse 12 by reflecting the truth of God's faithfulness even in the face of our faithlessness. Faithlessness in this context would mean a failure to live according to your confession. That is, to live disobediently as a prodigal son or prodigal daughter, for example. Perhaps even to the point of apostasy, a complete repudiation of your identity as a Christian. Much like a child who would claim, I'm not your son or daughter anymore, you're not my parents anymore. We might call that an apostate child, although we never use the term that way. But just as in the case of that child, no matter what our words may say or how our heart may feel, nothing can separate us from the love of God having been made manifest to us through the faith that he gives by gift. And yet, the prodigal son had consequences. And so do those who would repudiate their walk, who would go against their faith. And Paul gives Timothy now this summary in verses 11, 12, and 13, because he expected Timothy to share it with the congregation in Ephesus, which is what Paul says next, beginning in verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hamanaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Earlier in this chapter, you may remember, Paul asked Timothy to take the things that he had heard from Paul and then entrust those things to faithful men who would then, he expects, go on to teach them to the rest of the people in Ephesus. And when we looked at that back then, we understood that Paul was saying that the solution to apostasy was teaching the Bible properly. 
that it would give the people within the church an opportunity to understand their circumstances and react properly. So that as persecution grew, as pressure would have increased on them to do the wrong thing, the church body would have had the counsel of the Word of God to sustain them, to strengthen them, to give sense to why they needed to endure, to understand the benefits of it, to explain why God allows persecution, to understand that He empowers the believer to stand in it successfully, to offer rationale for why it's worth sacrificing now for something to be gained in eternity. Things that will help the believer make the right choice. But when the church lacks the Word of God... It leaves a vacuum, and as someone once observed, nature abhors a vacuum. Something is going to fill that empty void. And therefore, if a pastor were to neglect to provide the Word of God in its full counsel to a church, to those under his charge, in a consistent way, to train up his congregation in spiritual truth, then he can be sure others are going to step into that void and do it for him. And in particular, the enemy is going to take opportunity to fill that vacuum happily. And of course, he won't be serving up the Word of God. He's going to serve up lies, although he's going to dress them up to look pretty good. And Paul tells Timothy that's exactly what is happening in Ephesus. In verse 14, he tells Timothy to remind them of these things. Now, of course, these things refers to the principles that he just summed up in that trustworthy statement. So if we read between the lines a little bit here, It would seem that the church wasn't handling persecution particularly well in Ephesus. We already know that Paul has said all the leaders in Asia have abandoned him. And there's already been some evidence from what we've read of a shakiness in that church, a willingness to rethink their commitment to Christ because of what it might bring them in terms of persecution, what the costs might be. And as I said earlier, it seems Timothy himself may have been on the brink of following after those other leaders who abandoned Paul. Now, we're not sure how far Timothy might have gone down that path already, but there does seem to be some concern. And now, I would assume again, from Paul's words here, that Timothy may be neglecting, or at the very least overlooking, the need to teach doctrine in Ephesus to those impressionable believers who might be thinking about straying themselves. I say that because he seems to be reminding Timothy of the need to preach what is essentially basic Christian doctrine. He says, remind them of these things. And then he goes on to issue a charge. The problem, of course, is if they don't believe, for example, that they're saved entirely by faith alone, which is the first part of that saying, well, then they might have some unnecessary worries about what the future holds for them. Or if they waver at all in the face of persecution, what are they putting at risk? Or if they didn't understand that works are still necessary, that they bring opportunity for reward, well, then they may have felt that there was just no advantage in maintaining their witness in the face of persecution. That might have given them easy excuse to shrink back. Or if they didn't understand that God's desire is to test our faith through persecution, and that is part of how he blesses us. James says, count it all joy when you suffer. Well, if they didn't understand that, then they might be interested in proposing novel, unbiblical explanations for why they're suffering persecution. Things like you're about to see revealed later in the letter, as he said, in which some would maintain that the resurrection's already taken place. Strange, unbiblical reasoning, born out of ignorance because of a lack of teaching. That seems to potentially be what's going on in Ephesus. These things are happening to varying degrees, it appears, and Paul wants Timothy to put an end to it all, and he wants him to do it the old-fashioned way, through correcting of doctrine, through teaching. And then he asked Timothy, through a solemn charge, and that word to solemnly charge just means to declare with godly authority, 
that they are to stop useless arguing about false things. The English translation that I have says they must not wrangle about words. Uh, You may have a, a slightly different rendering of that. But in Greek, it literally translates this way as fighting about words. It means people who have real contention, not just friendly little debates over coffee. Paul is describing arguments that center on the meaning of words, probably words taken out of the Old Testament, although not necessarily exclusively, perhaps even some of the things that had been heard from what Paul had taught in his prior teaching to the church. Whatever the words were, these kinds of pedantic disputing is ever-present within the church. It's clearly present in Paul's day. It certainly hasn't gone away in our day. And it's always happening in the fruitful ground of untaught or the poorly taught in the church. It's a pooling of ignorance. It's a battle of wits between unarmed people. That's typically how you see these things play out. Ironically, most true biblical scholars have little or nothing to do with such arguments. When's the last time you saw some of the scholarly, some of the pillars of biblical scholarship in the church condescend into these kinds of arguments? They know better. They know it all to be red herrings. Disputes that are usually not the main issue of anything significant in our walk with Christ, nor do they illuminate a main issue. They are always distractions at best, and at worst, they are subterfuge. Like a pickpocket who distracts you while taking your wallet through sleight of hand. Paul says... Such wrangling or disputing over words are useless, and they lead, he says, to the ruin of the hearers. And what he's saying is this. In having no useful purpose, he's saying they don't lead you to the truth. They don't build your faith in Christ. They don't grow your walk. They don't encourage you to put away sin. They are useless spiritually. They're just ear candy. For this reason, Paul says, they lead to the ruin of hearers, literally the word ruin from the Greek, it literally means destruction, the destruction of the hearers. We could ask then, well, how are believers being destroyed by these useless debates? Well, he's referring again to their walk, their spiritual progression. Instead of pursuing true spiritual knowledge, people who like to get absorbed in wrangling over words, as he said, will find that their pursuit of the curious and the provocative and the sensationalistic will replace or overshadow a normal, responsible pursuit of truth out of the Bible. And instead of moving into the mainstream of spiritual maturity, they get caught in stagnant eddies where they stop moving and they stop growing. And you'll know them this way. If you ever are around them for any length of time, their topic of interest will return these little points of debate over and over again. It's their main reason to want to be in fellowship, at least in the extreme examples. Let me give you a few examples of what I see happening today. I have the benefit, or maybe not benefit, but I have the experience of seeing some of this stuff come our way because we get letters, we get emails all the time to the ministry asking Bible questions. And most of them, obviously, are mainstream questions. But every now and then you get one that's a little off. By off, I just mean it's characteristic of wrangling of words, of useless argument. And you'll find people who are investing a lot of meaningful time and energy into these things, like... The ones I've heard of late are, what's the correct Sabbath day? What's the proper name in which we are to address Jesus? What's his secret name that we're supposed to know and have to call him? Some debating the shape of the earth. Is it round? Is it flat? Some people disputing what laws of the Old Testament are still applicable to us. And they get into the debate over the most narrow definitioning of words, sometimes out of Scripture, usually, if not always, entirely out of context. It's as if the rest of the Bible doesn't exist... They narrow down to one verse, maybe half the verse in three words, and that suddenly, and that alone, 
is the thing on which their whole focus of Scripture now turns. And it's the main curiosity that they hold. If you get sucked into these discussions, take note. The arguments are not seeking spiritual truth by which you may know and serve Christ in a greater way. That's not the ultimate aim of the conversation. They are always distractions away from that goal. As R.W. Ward once observed, in the end, disputing about words seeks not the victory of truth, but the victory of the speaker. It becomes nothing more than who can come up with the most convincing repertoire of quotes from the scripture. None of them used properly. The whole exercise smacks of pride and ego. It feels like to me someone trying to prove some ridiculous assertion to win a bar bet. And the whole thing is entertainment. When true biblical instruction falls by the wayside, the enemy is ready to fill that void with this kind of nonsense. Because, why do you think the enemy would want to support this kind of conversation within the body, this kind of useless conversation? Because it's destructive to the spiritual growth of believers. The believer whose spiritual diet consists of this kind of junk food will be the first to fall away in a time of trial. Whether it's because of persecution or just their own personal temptations, they're going to be the first ones to run because they've invested in ear-tickling teaching that's done nothing to build them up spiritually for the preparation of what will come. And when the pleasure stops, well, so do they because that was the only reason they were in it in the first place. I mean, I'm not saying their faith turns on this. We're talking about true believers. We're talking about believers, though, for whom their investment of time in the body has come down to this very selfish pursuit of what piques their curiosity. Now, this is in the worst case. I'm painting an intentionally extreme example because it's the most easy to understand and see. Keeping in mind, though, that individual Christians rarely fall into black and white categories, so you're going to find a range of people, a range of interests, from the most extreme investment in this to someone who just dabbles in it once in a while to someone who's just heard it a little. Naturally, the antidote for this kind of thing is that the church would receive sound teaching. So Paul tells Timothy in verse 15, to summarize it, he says... Do your job. Specifically, Paul asked Timothy to be diligent, to present himself to God as a workman, approved and not ashamed, as he teaches the word. Now, the Greek word translated accurately handling simply means to use something as it was designed, to use something as it was intended. So the ultimate, and I would argue the only goal of biblical instruction, is to use the word of God correctly as it was designed or intended by the author. Ultimately, the author is the Spirit of God, but we still take into account the human author that God used because that person's history, their circumstance, their time in history, the the nature of why they were writing, to whom they were writing, all of that fits into how they express themselves. And we have to take all of that into account to make sure that we understand what did they intend us to take away from what they wrote. We're not free to just take it anywhere we want. And so... In the course of teaching, we are to try to endeavor to understand and use the word correctly. Now, sometimes in the course of doing that, we're going to have to focus down on individual words. We're going to have to consider the meaning of a specific word. Now the question becomes, what's the difference? When am I focused on words too much? When am I focused on words the right amount? Well, the difference is whether, again, we're using the text correctly. For example, some false teachers say, I'll use one of the modern examples, some false teachers would say that when you see the phrase, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, that's referencing a secret, unique name of Jesus, and that if you do not know and use that specific secret name, and only that name, then you are not saved. It's called the sacred name. That's the name of the false teaching, sacred name teaching. 
We have an answer on our website to that because we've seen that question come our way. I don't know how recent that is. It's probably come and gone throughout the centuries, but it seems to be coming back. There are people who are fascinated over researching exactly what is the right name to call Jesus. They know it's not Jesus, and they would even tell you it's not Yeshua. It's something else. And so if you don't get it right, you haven't called on his name, you're not saved. The teaching focuses on wrangling over words. And it's obviously wrong because it's not communicating the correct meaning of the text when the text says, call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible emphasizes the importance of calling, not on the importance of a name, of a certain name. Because regardless of which name of Jesus you would use and know, regardless of what language you know, the point is, we have called on Him. It's the identity that matters. And we know Him to be our Savior when we call on Him and we place our faith in Him according to what we've heard in the Gospel. The rest of it is just meaningless disputes over the wrangling of words. Paul says Timothy must be diligent to be a worker who uses Scripture correctly. That is, not according to what way you decide, but according to what the meaning of it was by the author's intent. The words diligent and the word worker in that verse makes it clear this is a process of effort, not talent. Yes, there are people who are teachers and gifted as such, but that doesn't mean that only teachers who are gifted can understand what the Bible means. That's a laity versus clergy mindset. We're not talking about this at all. Handling the Word of God correctly is not a gift. It's a practice. Everyone, especially pastors, have to work hard to handle the Word of God properly. And there will be no excuse for shoddy workmanship among those who seek to learn and teach the Scriptures. You all remember that James says that those who seek to teach will be held to a stricter judgment. Paul alludes to the risks of doing this when he says to Timothy that he must present himself before God on this matter. And Paul's alluding to Timothy's moment before Christ at the judgment seat. The Greek word for present is the word stand. So Paul's reminding Timothy, you're going to have to stand before God, before Christ, in a coming day, and give account for how you taught, for how you handled the Word of God. I don't think that those who have handled it incorrectly by honest mistakes are going to be held accountable. I don't believe it's a matter of perfection, obviously. But those who have knowingly taken a shoddy approach to the handling of God's Word will be held to account according to what Scripture says. And at that moment, Timothy will want to be judged as one who worked hard to teach properly, rather than one who wrangled over useless words as some were doing. So what are we to do when we're confronted by this kind of teaching, this kind of nonsense in the church, what would we imagine we might want to do in the face of someone like that who came to us with one of these strange teachings? Well, Paul tells Timothy what to do in verse 16, and it may not be what you would have expected. He tells him to avoid such empty, foolish talk. Now, as I've mentioned before, Paul doesn't say here what you might have thought, which is go debate them, go challenge them, or even just go consider their arguments or something of that sort. No, he says avoid them altogether. Give no time or attention to that teaching. Rebuke them to stay silent. Hope they will repent. But after this, have nothing more to do with them so long as they teach that way. Engaging in debates with people who want to promote useless speculation rather than the self-evident truth of Scripture is a counterproductive activity if your goal is advancing the truth. Paul says to engage with them, notice he says it leads to further ungodliness. The Greek word for lead can also be translated progress or progress. And therefore, we could say that while these false teachers were teaching progressive interpretations of Scripture, they only served to progress ungodliness. And Paul says avoid them, because to entertain them at any level only makes matters worse. First, it lends legitimacy to those false teachers. 
Can you imagine if John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, if you put him on a stage with some Yahoo who wants to get up there and declare any of the nonsense that's now become fashionable to circulate around on Internet websites, etc., what we've just done is put those two men, at least visually, perceptively, on a par. Why do we want to do that? When respected leaders give equal time to charlatans, we elevate them at the expense of our own legitimacy. Secondly, second reason this doesn't work for us is debating false teachers suggests to the observer, to Bible students, that the question that the false teacher has raised is open to debate or that the truth of the matter is in question, at least to some degree. You'll notice this about the false teachers. It's a technique of false teachers. They always begin with something that is settled truth of Scripture. Like, what does it mean to say, call upon the name of the Lord? No one was debating that before they showed up. No one had any doubt about what that meant before they raised the doubt. It's settled. It's understood. And they'll take these status quo truths and they'll proclaim they have a new and novel idea that just disrupts the whole status quo. For example, here's another recent email. This is quoting out of an email we received recently. Quote, I had been reading a lot of stuff about the flat earth theory and stories related to Enoch and Angel Uriel, saying that we have been deceived in many ways about the true shape of the earth. Now notice this was receiving teaching from false, unbiblical sources, and yet, implicitly, giving it equal weight to credible sources. doesn't matter how many other credible sources there are on the other side. One person says something, must be something to consider, right? And they're attracted to this whole concept because it's challenging orthodoxy. It feeds a conspiracy narrative. We've been lied to. That's been a pattern I've noticed throughout with false teaching. False teaching always implies there's some great deception afoot, and it's always seductive and exciting to untrained ears, and it gets people thinking, what? I haven't heard that before. Tell me more. It's useless teaching. It's untrue, but more than that, it distracts people away from what could have been a purposeful, meaningful pursuit of spiritual truth. Like, how do I know Christ more? How do I follow him better? How do I concern myself with his will in my life? Those are questions that we should spend time on. Why give that sort of thing any more traction? When we debate someone who has that kind of a view, we help raise that very question to the point of legitimacy in the minds who are hearing the debate. It leads people to think there's something there that isn't there. Paul says that kind of thing spreads like gangrene. Medically, gangrene has a very specific understanding today. In their day, in Paul's day, it was a term that meant any kind of sore in the flesh that wouldn't heal. Paul's referring to the body here like the body of Christ, as the physical body, comparable here. Any kind of teaching like this eats away at the body, destroying the walk and the progression of believers, at least in whatever corners of the body that it affects. The third and final reason we don't debate this kind of stuff, you underestimate the skill of the enemy. Because the very fact that you're willing to enter into a debate assumes that you think you're going to win the argument in the end. Otherwise, why would you even do it? The enemy is crafty, friends, no less so when he speaks through false teachers. Just because truth is on our side, that doesn't mean you're not going to fall in the debate and look foolish. It happened to a woman in the garden. For all three reasons then, Bible teachers, pastors, and I even think the general body of Christ, should never agree to debate, to entertain conversations about self-evidently unbiblical or useless views of Scripture or word wrangling or whatever you want to call it. Instead, you should obey Scripture when it commands you to avoid such things. I don't think you have to avoid the person like, as in, ostracize them. 
But as long as that's their topic of conversation, you need to let them find someone else to talk to. Don't play with fire, you get burned. Paul mentions two such people here. Hymenaeus and Philetus, they were members of the church in Ephesus, and that means they're probably under Timothy's charge. If so, then, mentioning them by name, that might have been Paul's not-so-subtle way of reminding Timothy of the dangers present in his own church and maybe even a little of his own weakness as a leader. That they would be men like this engaged in a dispute in the church that he pastors. And the dispute was over the timing of the resurrection of the church. Now, the resurrection moment of the church is often called by another name today. We refer to it often as the rapture. That's the event we're talking about here, the moment when the body of Christ collectively receives their new eternal bodies. It's a common source of dispute today, and it's unnecessary today because Scripture is so absolutely abundantly clear on it. But now you can see the dispute started long ago, and I think it's because the enemy has always recognized the strategic value of undermining a Christian's understanding of and confidence in the promise of your own resurrection. Our resurrection, friends, is the single most important moment in the life of the believer. More so even than their coming to faith, for coming to faith is something God does to us before we even know we need it. But the resurrection is the moment in our experience with Christ where we're going to receive all that's been promised. It's the thing we look forward to the whole time we walk with him in the meantime. And the Bible thinks of it so highly it calls it our hope. When the Bible talks about your hope in Christ, hope is not some general term. It's always a reference, if not always, almost always a reference specifically to your hope of living again with Christ, of resurrecting into a new body. So our hope in Christ is all about our being raised from the grave never to die again. That's your hope made possible by your faith in Christ. So these men in Ephesus apparently were maintaining that, as Paul says, the resurrection had already happened. Now what that would mean then is that they're teaching the saints in the church in Ephesus who were still on the earth that they had not been included in the rapture. The classic left behind scenario for believers. Now who knows how they explain this. But regardless, Paul says this teaching was, quote, upsetting the faith of some. No doubt. No doubt, right? We can understand why this would be so. If I believed I've missed the resurrection, well then, first of all, I'd have little reason to persist in my walk of faith, right? The whole thing I was persisting for was for the promised day I would be taken and given a new body. And if that day came and went without me, well then, I would have found all my motivation gone, and then as I face persecution for my faith, what benefit would there be for me in enduring? The whole thing starts to look like a house of cards, like I have actually been lied to. If that were true, if it were true, I'd miss the resurrection. In fact, the Greek word translated upset, it was upsetting their faith, in verse 18. In the Greek, that's literally the word overthrown. These men were causing believers to overthrow their faith, that is to say, to drop it and walk away from it, to lose hope. And rightly so, if that were the truth. And why? Because of a few men wrangling about with certain words, causing confusion and doubt. And again, we don't know what the wrangling involved. We don't know what they were talking about. But clearly, Paul puts it in this category. And Paul gives a short and simple counter to their false teaching in verse 19. He says, The testimony of the word, which he calls the firm foundation of God, will stand or remain, you could say, despite these men. And in what he says about the word, the firm foundation, he quotes there, you see in your Bible it might be in parentheses, might be italicized, I'm not sure if it's set out. But Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages in one verse, kind of strings them together, and says these statements are the seal, Paul says. What he's talking about is this. In the way they used to construct buildings in Paul's day, 
an architect or the builder of the building would inscribe on a cornerstone, usually on the foundation, his personal mark or seal, identifying himself as the builder or the architect. You see this today, right? We put brass plaques up that tell you about who was the president of the company when the building was made or who was the mayor when they put up the airport or whatever. It's that kind of an idea. And on Roman buildings, they would put these seals all over buildings to let you know the history of the building or who built it, like his signature, if you will. And so Paul says the seal identifies the builder's work. And the word of God declares that believers are marked or sealed in a way that identifies our builder. And Paul quotes a couple of verses. Probably the first one is from Numbers 16, 5. It's a paraphrasing. He says, the Lord knows who are his. This is a statement of assurance to the believer. That is to say, no matter what is taught and no matter what lies a believer may fall prey to, what deceptions might pull them away, no matter how they are drawn astray, nonetheless, the Lord knows who his children are. And we can be sure he does not forget us and he will not fail to fulfill his promises to us. So even in the case of those who have been upset, as, as Paul said, by such men who may have abandoned their walk as Christians, to you and I, if you meet them after that date, you might never know they were a Christian because they've gone so far away from Christ. Nonetheless, Paul is assuring them that they will be resurrected one day. And what's so ironic, of course, is for someone like that, they'll actually be surprised to see their promise fulfilled in the end, for they will have given up on it. And the shame of it is they could have been strengthened by that hope their whole walk instead of feeling like they had nothing to walk for. If these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, if they had understood the word of God, rather than investing time in nonsense and in useless arguments, they could have known these things too. They could have seen the assurance of God's promises, that he would not forget any who are his, And with that assurance would have come the knowledge that they could have refuted the kind of stupid claims that were running around in the church saying the resurrection had already happened. You hear that similar things are being said in the church in Thessalonica in a similar time in history. What Paul's doing here is he's quoting from Numbers in that simple, pithy way to illustrate a larger point, which is if you had a general knowledge of Scripture, if you had studied what they had available, which in their day was only the Old Testament by and large, That would have given you, among other things, a general understanding that God keeps his promises and he knows who are his and he will not forget. Knowing that fact, any sensible, biblically educated person could have heard the teaching that said we've missed the resurrection and dismissed it out of hand, never thought another thing of it because they would have known instinctively this is contrary to the teaching of Scripture generally. This is not the God I worship. You're preaching something that is of a different God, not the one that I know. You're preaching something false. Because, friends, that's generally how study of Scripture works in preparing you to handle false teaching. You don't gain a specific response to every false teaching somewhere buried in the Bible. That's not how it works, right? It's not possible. Given the infinite number of ways lies can be constructed, there's no possible way the Bible could have an answer for everything that someone might concoct. Instead, the more you know Christ and his plans... The more you know his character from the scripture, the better you'll be at spotting false or useless teaching, regardless of whether it's novel or it's something that's been circulated since the beginning. And that's enough to reject it. That's enough to have nothing to do with it. It's the way we train tellers to deal with counterfeit currency. We don't study counterfeits because there's an infinite number of ways to construct a counterfeit. Instead, we just ask them to study the real thing so that when they see something that's not real, it will stand out. That's why Paul quotes the second verse, the second half taken probably from Isaiah 52.11, where he says, The Lord declares that everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. 
That is, when we can identify something that's false because of our training in the Word, then we don't need to tangle with it. We don't need to try to fix it. We just need to avoid it. To abstain, that is, from wickedness. So when you put the two together, study of Scripture prepares you to spot wickedness and gives you a desire to please the Lord, which will lead you to steer clear of such things. But if our egos get the better of us, we may decide, well, we're going to try to challenge and defeat this false teaching face-to-face. We're going to take it on. Or if we may be, are weak in our study, we may not even recognize it as an error. We may become a victim of it. It may entice us. We may find it very interesting and novel and love to share it with someone else. Since Paul has asked Timothy to remind the church of these things and to teach properly in the word, then he offers his fourth metaphor, fourth example to encourage obedience to his instructions. We covered the earlier three, I said, soldier and athlete and farmer. Now he introduces a fourth one, verse 20. He says, now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, if we're going to understand this analogy properly, we need to keep it in its context. What's the context of chapter 2? Well, it's believers led astray, potentially by false teaching, into useless and destructive walks of faith. That's the context. Secondly, we'd have to assign proper meaning to each of the details in the analogy in light of that context. Starting with this large house. Scripture uses a house as a picture or a euphemism for families or for groups. The house of David, the house of this, the house of that. Or, as in many cases, the people of God are called the house of God. The house in Scripture. And the church is specifically called the house of Christ in Hebrews. And Christ being the master of his house, that is, of us, then it makes sense to conclude that this large house, in light of the context, refers to all believers. Large in the sense that it incorporates all believers throughout the entire period of the church, which, at least by this point, must be millions, if not billions, of believers. And in that large house, that is, in the church, we're going to find a variety. We're going to find gold and silver vessels, These would have been the pots that the family would have used to serve food, probably at very special occasions. You can think of them as uh, our equivalent of fine china, the very nicest things you have. But also in that house are vessels of earthenware and wood. And these would have been the vessels you would have used just for common things. And in fact, some of them would have been used as toilets in the home. So it can go as far down the scale as that. Obviously, you don't want to mix up these things. All of these vessels are part of the master's house. They're all part of the house, and yet there are obvious distinctions between them. And in the metaphor, as you can see, the distinctions are quite severe. And Paul intended this stark contrast in order to make sure we didn't miss the fact that he was trying to make a distinction. But just because this is so stark in the metaphor, that doesn't require that we apply an equally strong distinction when we interpret the metaphor. In other words, even the dishonorable vessels here are believers. We see that clearly because in verse 21... The vessels are then called to cleanse themselves, to do something, so as to make themselves vessels of honor. The word in Greek for cleanse, it could mean to clean out, as in to dump out, as in to empty out the filthy contents of something. If some were to conclude that this 
is really a reference to honorable vessels meaning believers and dishonorable vessels meaning unbelievers, well then you'd have a real problem interpreting verse 21 because it would be strongly suggesting that the individual is to clean themselves up so as to be honorable before God because it's a description of the vessel cleaning itself. And if we were talking about unbelievers, we'd be suggesting a works-based gospel effectively. The reason this confusion even arises at all is because Paul uses a very similar metaphor in Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul talks about honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels. But in chapter 9 of Romans, he speaks of it in an entirely different way. In chapter 9, God is the one acting, and he creates vessels in certain ways, Paul says, for certain purposes. Here, the vessels are the actors, and they're the ones called to make themselves honorable for the sake of pleasing the Lord. That's clearly not a reference to coming to faith. That has to be a reference to the sanctifying walk of a believer. And Paul's using this to describe the honor or dishonor that can come on different members of the body of Christ. And that honor, or lack thereof, is determined by whether we clear out the things that dishonor us in God's eyes, whether we dump out the refuse, so to speak. That is, in keeping with what he just said, which is a believer is called to come out of the wickedness of the world, to depart from it, to stand out in our witness, to separate ourselves from the world, to separate ourselves from false teaching and from those who promote it. As we do this, well, we serve the whole purpose of the church. That is, we witness to the truth, we honor, and we please Christ. But of course, if you do this, if you walk in this way, you know what else is going to happen? You're going to raise your profile to the enemy, which in many cases will lead to persecution, greater persecution, greater trial. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And I've often said that in light of that passage, that if as a Christian you feel absolutely no persecution for your faith, that should be an indication to you how little you're walking like a Christian. You've managed to find a path in this world that the enemy has no reason in bringing persecution because you're silencing your own witness. He doesn't need to spend the energy. To the Christians who have made the effort to stand out in the way God has asked them to, they have a target on their back. And persecution, as Jesus said, is a guaranteed outcome for such a person. And as a result, that brings up a challenge, brings up a consequence. This is the dilemma that I think was facing Ephesus and Timothy and the rest of that church. Do you do what God requires and be honored at the judgment and receive reward? Or do you shrink back? Do you blend in? Do you avoid persecution? You really can't have it all. You cannot find peace in this world and peace with God. You cannot find honor in this world and honor with God. Woe to you when people say all manner of nice things about you. You can't have two masters. Paul says those are the consequences for these choices. That vessels that preserve their honor, that were sanctified, he uses that term, and therefore useful to the master, are prepared for every good work. That God brings opportunity for the best works to those who are best prepared for them. The preparation of our lives is a prerequisite to the opportunity to serve in some capacity, some greater capacity, some more honoring capacity. That God knows better than to put someone who's not prepared into a great opportunity that he needs to see done a certain way. You don't write the 95 Theses and then figure out how to become Martin Luther. You have to have been Martin Luther before he gives you the opportunity to write 95 Theses. The honorable vessels in the home are those who are ready to serve and therefore they will be rewarded with opportunities for good works. What prepared them, you might ask, to be ready? Well, I would argue it's the renewing of their minds through the word of God. That as they begin to understand biblical truth, they could then discern false teaching and avoid it. They could walk in that truth, confident, unshaken by persecution. 
that could have a cause that was worth a sacrifice now, knowing what eternity would bring. It made sense. It was reasonable. Their reasonable service to God, as Paul says in Romans 12. And they knew that the reward was worth what they were losing if they were called to make a loss, to, to suffer loss. And so this leads Paul into a series of direct exhortations to Timothy to finish the chapter. Things he wants Timothy to do to handle the present situation in Ephesus, knowing everything he's just said. Verse 22, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You can actually see in this passage a summary of most of what we've looked at in the last two chapters because it wraps up Paul's major ideas that he's expressed so far in the letter. First, he asked Timothy, flee youthful lusts. I'm known to trip up on this and say, flee lustful youths. But you know, it's true either way you say it. We know Timothy was a younger man. And young men have lusts that older men generally Lack to some degree, and obviously sexual lusts are obvious, that's a key one, but I don't think that's what Paul's principally concerned about here with Timothy, given what he's been talking about, what's been in this letter so far. There's no indication that he's tremendously concerned about Timothy's lust for women. More likely, youthful lusts with regard to Timothy would be things like ambition, uh, public acceptance, financial accumulation, the kinds of things that will drive compromise for selfish pursuit, for selfish interest. And I think, I'm speculating of course, but those things could have been responsible for pulling Timothy away from a strong stand with Paul or giving him temptation to think twice about what he was doing. Paul says, flee these things. Literally run, the term in Greek would mean to run from them. And it's a term that he uses as a play on words because the next thing he says is pursue, or you could say run after, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's not just the running and the urgency that's implied here, it's the directional difference that's implied. It's like when you choose to run from a lust of some kind, if it's over here, the place to run is away from it, as Scripture indicates. And as you do that, you're naturally running toward these other things. They're diametrically opposed. They're on the opposite ends. That's the idea. You can't run both directions at the same time. Each of these words is important to Paul, these words of righteousness and faith, love, and peace. But I want to look at them here in a collective sense because that's the intention, I believe. Together they represent the true sanctification of someone who is honorable in the previous analogy, of that vessel who's honorable. True spiritual maturity and strength is living in righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And this is true despite persecution, despite deprivation, despite rejection. If you're a mature Christian, to varying degrees and on varying days, yes, you won't be perfect, no one is. But in a more general sense than not... You will have these qualities, righteousness, that is living according to the word of God, being upright in your life. And you will have a love for people that transcends the specifics of their behavior to you. You will love your enemies, you'll love people generally, you will be a loving sort. Uh, You will have faith, you'll have confidence and hope, you won't waver depending on whether or not the world is being kind to you or things are going your way. You will have a, a sense of purpose that is eternal, it won't turn on circumstance. And you will have peace. 
a peace that comes from understanding that this world's passing and you're assured of the next and it's just a waiting game. I don't need to be that invested in what happens between now and then. I don't have to have any worries or doubts. The Lord has made his promise and he is faithful to keep it. These things transcend the day to day. That's a sign or a mark of spiritual maturity. And it's born out of a close walk with Christ through his word. That's the reason, for example, why we would naturally expect, Scripture expects, more mature people in the body to have more of these qualities. It's not because it comes with age. It's because the expectation is that age gave you, or years of time, gave you opportunity to study your Bible and to practice it and to become good at it. That's the whole idea of why age becomes a a way of measuring spiritual maturity. It's because the expectation is that we use that time well. What a sad thing it is to find a Christian who's in their later years and they don't show any spiritual maturity. It's a sign of just how much of their life has been misspent in that respect. They are evidence of a pure heart, Paul says, among all those who call upon the name of the Lord. So as Timothy pursued these things, the instructions he was given, Paul also said, you must also refuse, or you could say not answer, those who engage in foolish and ignorant speculation, which is the stuff we just talked about. And so here again, the standard is to avoid such people, not to engage with them. And Paul reiterates, we refuse them because they're just seeking to start a fight. They're just looking for the quarrel. And Paul says, those who seek to serve the Lord as his bondservants cannot be known as quarrelsome people. The, the Greek word for quarrelsome can be translated to be contradictory. We use a slightly different word to mean a very similar thing, a contrarian. Contrarian is a spirit, a nature of sin in the heart that always wants to be on the opposite side of some argument, discussion, position, or point of view. And at the heart of it, it's egotistical and prideful because the goal is to stand out. The goal is to be different. The goal is to gain attention by being different. I mean, what attention-gaining value is there in agreeing with the status quo? But if I can find an argument against the status quo, I'm suddenly unique. So contrarianism probably has many motivations, but one of them is to stand out. Paul says, a man of God cannot be a contrarian by nature. That's not helpful to the body of Christ. We can't become known as someone who makes a pattern of contradicting whatever's being said. Because if you're contrarian, that means more often than not, you're contradicting truth. More often than not, you're saying the weird thing. Contrarian natures don't advance the state of knowledge. They tend to detract from it. They tend to get everybody off the point. Paul says to Timothy, your job description precludes you from engaging in debates. Because it's not part of the job. Instead, he says, a pastor has to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, correcting those in opposition, in gentleness. Paul says, this is a recipe of sorts for how a pastor must approach, not just life in general, but very specifically the situations where empty talk and silly notions are being spread about in the place of solid biblical instruction. How do you deal with this? Now, he has already said that we are not to engage it in the ways I've already discussed. But that does not mean you ignore it, and that's an important distinction. So what do you do about it? Well, first he says, be kind to all. This is just a good general rule in life, isn't it? Being rude to a false teacher has absolutely no value because it's not going to help you win them over, and it only makes you look bad too. Secondly, he says a pastor must be able to teach. And of course, that just means that on the point of contention... If you hope to be able to set this person straight, you have to be able to teach that person where they are wrong. Now, obviously, teaching implies a student willing to learn. So Paul is not contradicting himself when he said earlier that you should flee and avoid such people. He's merely stating the obvious. That is, if you have the potential to help that person because they show a willingness to be corrected, 
Well, then the teacher, the pastor, must possess sufficient knowledge to correct them on the facts. Otherwise, no one's going to get anywhere. So you have to be able to teach them on the point. But you're not going to force your teaching on someone who's not open to it. Thirdly, Paul says, be patient when wrong. I would tell you that's a prerequisite for pastoral service because when you're working with other people's needs and sins and so on, it's inevitable that sooner or later in the course of ministering that someone's going to do something that offends, whether intentionally or otherwise. And if a pastor stormed off in a huff, anytime someone spoke an unkind word or took offense to what they say, then they'd be a very lonely person because they'd quickly be by themselves. You have to maintain a perspective that people are sheep in the biblical sense, and therefore, as shepherds, you lead them, you don't drive them from behind. And you've got to show patience as you do that, in the hope that that engagement will lead somewhere good over time. Finally, the job inevitably includes correcting those who are in opposition. The goal here is not to make or keep friends, or to find common ground, or any of that stuff. The goal is to correct. So, to those who are opposing the truth, your goal is to put them on a course that's aligned with the truth. You don't want to hurt their feelings, not unnecessarily, but you can't be afraid of hurting feelings if you're going to do the job of correcting. In a small church, typically people who think very differently from what they find in the church just leave, which is fine. But occasionally, you know, there'll be that time when someone wants to bring up a teaching, wants me to consider something, wants to make a point to me about something. And if it's legitimate, it's simply a a question over theology or doctrine, fine, we'll talk about it. If it's useless, silly stuff... I will entertain it for very little time at all, and I don't try to be unkind about it, but I try to be very direct, and I try to explain to that person they have moved off the trail of where they need to be as a Christian, and they need to put that aside and get back to the main things. And it's to their own detriment if they continue, and if they don't want to hear the advice, I'm not going to say more about it than that. But I'm, I'm going to do what I think Scripture is calling Timothy or any pastor to do in those circumstances, to correct those in opposition. If a pastor approaches the correction of speculation and false teaching in this way, there is a chance you're going to win someone over. You can't deny that possibility. But Paul says, only if the Lord may grant them repentance. Notice that. Again, we're talking about believers here. So consider what Paul just revealed. That even the knowledge of biblical truth depends on his will to reveal it. So that if we become enamored with false teaching, we are taking a huge risk that the Lord may not grant you the repentance necessary to bring you to your senses someday. He may elect to leave us wherever our pride or ego or ignorance takes us. If you're not diligent to study and follow Scripture, then you may stumble into some pit of false teaching, and the Lord may or may not drop a rope down there to get you out. That's up to Him. But you're betting that He will if you're choosing to play with this kind of stuff. The writer of Hebrews says something similar. The writer says, Those who do not know the Word of God don't know how to discern good from evil. And that leaves them susceptible to the enemy's lies and the sin that he can provoke in us. And if we allow ourselves to descend to that point, we will escape the snare of the devil only if the Lord brings us to our senses, Paul says, or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, only if he permits. So the enemy is working to sideline and to stumble God's people. We're no longer his, but Paul says at the end of verse 26, we can be deceived into doing his will. That's what happens when Christians turn aside to follow myths or to live in open rebellion. And that's what Timothy and the rest of Ephesus would have been doing if they continued to run from their witness or they continued to entertain false teaching and avoid persecution in some way. They're being deceived, held captive by the enemy, vessels filled with dishonor. The Father is merciful, but as the parables remind us, He is an exacting master who reaps where He does not sow. And He expects us to keep His commandments, to keep His instructions. 
Father, I pray that the, the word tonight has been spoken truly and according to your will, in keeping with your meaning of the text, Father, as you said, to handle it as it was intended. I pray, Father, that it was so. But knowing that it was delivered by sinful men, a sinful man who has no perfection in him apart from what you grant, then I must also ask, Lord, that where error was spoken, you have corrected it already in their hearts. You will make it clear through your spirit what is truth. And to me as well, Father. We thank you for the chance to study it, Father, in a time and an age when many's, many who are in the body are unable or unwilling. And we ask, Father, that as you've given it to us tonight, you give us opportunity to, go, to do the good works that it inspires within us. That we can serve you for honorable purposes, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.